This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the internet's leading provider of audio entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. When you're done with this episode, please visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for a free audio download with your free 30-day trial membership. Today's recommendation is Heretics and Heroes, How Renaissance Artists and Reformation Priests Created Our World by Thomas Cahill. I have not read this one personally, but it looks fascinating, and it's on my list for research. Cahill takes us through the innovations of the Renaissance and the Reformation and shows us how this laid the groundwork for modern society. You may choose this or another one of their many titles when you visit audibletrial.com forward slash the Renaissance for your free download. Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance, Episode 4, Masaccio's Perspective. Last week, we left off with Ghiberti and Brunelleschi, and we discussed their contributions to the early Renaissance. Today's episode, we will explore in greater detail one of Brunelleschi's contributions to art. This, of course, is perspective. Despite being a discovery of Brunelleschi, it is one of his friends and colleagues, Masaccio, who will make use of it and push the idea even further, inspiring generations of paintings. But before we delve into perspective, let's discuss the background of Masaccio. I want you to imagine yourself at 26. What were you doing? What did you accomplish? Most of us probably not very much. Maybe we're out of college, first job or two, but we really haven't changed the world yet, right? And if you're not 26, well, think about where you are now. So why do I want you to look back to your mid-20s with regret and frustration at what you didn't accomplish? Okay, well, that's not really the point. It's actually about Masaccio. Masaccio was only 26 at his death, so only 26 years old, and yet he had changed the world. He wasn't a conqueror or a great diplomat, but he was a painter, and he revolutionized art and how we see the world around us. We've discussed in episode 1 how Giotto pushed art forward toward the Renaissance. So, for my engineering friends out there, maybe we want to compare him to Henry Ford. What he did was groundbreaking and revolutionary, and he moved everything forward. He had done things that had never been seen prior. But Masaccio took things even further. He blasted off into space. He took Giotto's ideas and he expanded on them, like one of Werner von Braun's Saturn rockets to the moon. He did all of this before the age of 26, when he died either of poisoning or an illness. Masaccio was born in San Giovanni, Valdarno, a few miles north of Florence in 1401. Although he was called Masaccio, he was baptized Tommaso di Ser Giovanni di Simone. Tommaso took the nickname Masaccio, which essentially means Messy Tom or Hulking Tom. does not seem to be an insult, but a term of endearment. 
and probably had more to do with his disheveled appearance and his absent-mindedness more than anything else. It was not uncommon for artists to be disheveled or dirty. It was considered a mark of genius. These men put all of their focus into their art and none into their clothes. Giotto and Brunelleschi wore tattered clothes and were often unkept. Michelangelo was described the same way. It was believed that the singular focus on art, not their physical appearance, is what made them great. Vasari describes Masaccio as one who, having fixed his whole mind and will on the matters of art, cared little about himself and still less about others. Growing up in Florence, Masaccio would have been exposed to the work of Giotto. He would have seen early attempts at perspective. He was also friends with Brunelleschi and Donatello. This is important because Brunelleschi is actually the one who rediscovers perspective. And both Brunelleschi and Donatello encouraged Masaccio to go to Rome, to study from classical Greek sculpture, study architecture, all of this to help him break with the Gothic style. We'll see evidence of this in his first major work, the Brancacci Chapel. So let's talk about perspective. So the Greeks and Romans understood perspective. They used it in their work. You can see it in their paintings, their wall paintings. They knew how to create this illusion, and they understood the mathematical formula behind it. This was lost during the Middle Ages, partly because of the lack of learning and understanding of classical text, but also because the early church disliked the illusion of perspective. They felt it was similar to lying, with some sort of trickery, and that it was dishonest or a dishonest representation of art to use the illusion of depth. So what Giotto used in his work is known as herringbone perspective. He has receding lines, but they don't meet a single vanishing point, and this creates the strange effect of multiple points of view within the same work. Perspective was rediscovered by Brunelleschi. It's possible he saw Roman paintings. Uh, however, this is not likely. Brunelleschi was a mathematician as well as an architect, and as we discussed last week, he spent a lot of time in Rome surveying the ancient ruins. It's a small step to take a surveyor's tool to measure the buildings, the height and dimensions and the length and so on, and to put that on paper to create perspective. Very likely, he drew from his experience surveying the Roman ruins, and this translated to his mathematical theory and his formula for creating perspective in artwork. Vasari relates the story of how Brunelleschi demonstrates the effect of perspective. In 1413, Brunelleschi conducted experiments demonstrating how to create this illusion on a flat surface. Brunelleschi painted a small panel of the baptistry of San Giovanni from within the portal of the cathedral, roughly 115 feet away from the baptistry. He painted everything that was visible within the frame of the doorway. This includes the baptistry, the streets, everything. As he was painting, he used a series of geometrically laid guidelines and matched everything up with its vanishing point. Instead of a sky, he placed a burnished piece of silver that would reflect the sky and the clouds, as well as the birds. He drilled a hole into the central vanishing point of the painting. The viewer would look through the hole with the painting facing away from them, while holding a mirror, and standing at the same spot at the cathedral. The effect was said to be so lifelike that viewers could not tell if they were looking at the actual scene or the reflection of the painting. It was Masaccio who would be the first one to use perspective in art. Now, there are two different types of perspective. There's linear and aerial. Linear obviously uses lines. Aerial, also known as atmospheric, uses color transitions. So let's go over a little bit of linear perspective, define a few terms, 
the first and most important is the horizon. This is your eye level. So as you look out, it's the farthest point you can see. The vanishing point is where all objects meet and literally vanish on the horizon. It's a point on the horizon. Your sky plane is everything above the vanishing point. Your ground plane is everything below. This is what we would be standing on. We have one point perspective, two point perspective, and three point perspective. One point, you have a single vanishing point, usually a central single vanishing point. Two point, you'll have two vanishing points on either side. And three point, well, that one just makes me dizzy. You have one above or it can be below and then a vanishing point on either side. So it's a combination of both one point and two point. With one point, you have a central vanishing point along the horizon. If you think of a set of railroad tracks or a road and you're standing in the middle, it's a fixed position. Those slanting lines of the railroad will converge to a point where they meet. Your verticals and your horizontals are gonna remain parallel and perpendicular to each other. All uprights of a building will be perfectly straight. The front, the front sides, the horizontals, will be parallel to your horizon. But the sides of the building that recede into the space will meet at the vanishing point. And it's this receding into space that creates the illusion of depth. As we can walk into the space. All of this sounds really simple, and it is. However, it's a difficult concept to learn for both students and adults of art. There's a tendency to render everything in flat planes. You have to change the way you perceive the world around you. This is why learning art at a young age is so valuable and so important. It helps us to better perceive the world around us. So not only does it help us become better artists, but we actually understand what we're seeing, even in nature. I will include some examples. I have some examples of Masaccio's work. Uh, I may include a few others on the renaissancepodcast.com. I have also posted a very interesting article on Brunelleschi and Masaccio from the National Gallery, which is on the Facebook page. So I might try to post that on the regular website as well for those of you that are interested. But there's motivation for you to come like us on Facebook as well. Now we're going to move on to two-point perspective. The same ideas. It's really the same concept. You have your horizon line. That's your eye level. So, and that can change depending on are you higher or lower. Um, that's something we'll get into a little bit later. But for now, just if you can imagine or if you want to draw it out, you know, center of your page. That's the simplest. These two vanishing points can be anywhere along the horizon. They can even extend off the page. A lot of artists will do this, and it makes for an interesting composition. But you have two vanishing points, one on either side of the horizon. Your verticals remain perpendicular to the horizon. Every other line now within the, the drawing or the painting will meet at that vanishing point. And, and you can see this if you go look at a building, you stand at the corner, two streets on either side, you can see this effect. But it's the same idea as your one point, except that now... Off to the periphery, you have two vanishing points. Continuing with the skyscraper or building example, you stand at that corner, everything to the left of that corner, that vertical, straight up and down, everything to the left will go to the left vanishing point. Everything to the right will go to the right vanishing point. If you have another building, you have to start with the corner as well. Everything to the left of that vertical line, that corner, goes to the left vanishing point, and then same to the other side, goes to the right. The trick to this, to really make it work in a drawing or a painting, is to line everything up. 
use your guidelines, use your ruler, whatever aid you're using at the time, right, as you're learning this. Line up your windows, your columns, your trees, people. Everything's going to be in perspective. One thing I see a lot with students is they will do the top and the bottom of the building in perspective, but the windows are flat and perfectly square on the sides that are receding, which makes them obviously stand out like they're coming forward. So it's important to keep all of that in line, make sure they line up to the vanishing point as well. And this will place everything in scale. Like I said, even people, and you'll see this with Renaissance artists as we move on, the figures will be in scale. And Masaccio is one of the first artists to do this as well. So as everything gets smaller, so do your people. They're all the same height. As they go back, they will gradually get smaller and smaller until they finally disappear. As far as three-point perspective, we're not going to delve into it too deeply. Not something you commonly see in the Renaissance. It's definitely more modern. And this is one that makes me dizzy. So, but basically you have three vanishing points. You line it up just like your two-point perspective. The difference being, and you have to place yourself in the picture now, you have a central vanishing point above or below you. So if you think about standing at the bottom of a skyscraper, and now you look up. So before we were looking at the corner of the building with our two vanishing points on our left and our right. We still have those vanishing points, but as we look up and the skyscraper reaches into the sky, it's also going to converge. Those lines will converge at a vanishing point in the sky. Same thing if you were above. If you're on top of the building, looking down, the bottom of the skyscraper is smaller. And then as it comes closer, it's larger, right? This is something you see a lot in comic books today. It's very dramatic, but it's one of those that kind of will make your head spin if you stare at it too long. Let's talk a little bit about aerial perspective. This was used quite a bit in the Renaissance. And again, this is another one of Masaccio's, not really innovations, but he's the one that incorporated into art. As I said earlier, it's also known as atmospheric perspective. And this is the effect that the atmosphere has on objects as we see them in a distance. So our warmer colors come forward, our bright yellows and reds, your darker colors are forward. And as it recedes, it becomes bluer and lighter. This creates that depth. You can see this effect if you've ever been in the mountains and you look off to the distance. As they're close up, there are brighter colors. Maybe you see greens or whatever. If it's fall, you might see nice you know, reds and yellows. But at all times of the year, as they move to the distance, they become blue and fainter. And finally, totally disappear into this sort of white haze of the sky. So this is aerial perspective. This is something we'll see Masaccio use in the Brancacci Chapel. Okay, now getting back to Messy Tom. All right, Masaccio, remember, means Messy Tom. He returned from Rome, and upon his return, he abandoned the Gothic style completely. Just like Brunelleschi, Ghiberti, and Donatello, he was now immersed in these new ideas of the Renaissance, this rebirth of classical ideas. Like Brunelleschi, he may have observed perspective in the wall paintings, but most historians think this is unlikely. There weren't a lot that were well-preserved in Rome at this time. More likely, he was exposed to Brunelleschi's ideas. They were close friends, worked well together, and Brunelleschi spent a lot of time teaching him geometry and mathematics and architecture. So the combination of his experience in Rome, along with Brunelleschi's ideas, jump-started Masaccio into this whole new vision of painting. The main two works we're going to look at are the Holy Trinity at Santa Maria Novella 
and his works in the Brancacci Chapel. And these are evidence of this break. And again, it's a complete break now. There's no elements of the Gothic style within his work at all. Masaccio will use both linear and aerial perspective to create a heightened reality, which was his main goal. He wanted his paintings to be real, to feel real, to have that illusion of realism. Vasari says that Masaccio studied perspective so intently that he was able to use it with ease. So much so, he seemed like its inventor or its discoverer instead of Brunelleschi. In fact, the way Masaccio uses perspective becomes a trademark style of the Renaissance, and every artist after him will use perspective. It would be unheard of to see an artist paint flat. In fact, we don't see flat paintings until you get to the 19th century. So from Masaccio forward. Now we'll talk about a few artists who are contemporary to Masaccio who still maintain some of the Gothic style, but even they're using elements of his perspective. So from Masaccio to the end of the 19th century, a little over 500 years, this is the way Western art is portrayed, using linear and aerial perspective. Now let's talk about his work at Santa Maria Novella. Santa Maria Novella, if you come out of the Santa Maria Novella train station on your way from Rome or wherever you're coming in, and you take a right turn, you literally walk into the church. Santa Maria Novella is a very important church throughout the Renaissance and later. This is the site for the Holy Trinity, Masaccio's painting of the Holy Trinity, that is. There seems to be a lot of confusion about the dates. I've got a couple that say 1425. Uh, I have a few sources that say 1428. It's either his first painting or his last painting. I actually agree with Fasari on this one. I think it's his last work. We're going to go over it first because it's the best example of perspective and it's very clear. But I think it's much more developed than his work in the Brancacci Chapel. In the very least, these two paintings were completed around the same time. Both were in that time frame between 1425 and 1428. So if we look at the Holy Trinity, you have Christ on the cross with God the Father above him, and Mary and John at his feet, and then there's a couple of wealthy Florentines, the donors for this chapel, that are painted life-size just outside the walls of the chapel. So it's as though you're looking through a window right, into the chapel. Masaccio places a single vanishing point beneath the feet of Christ. This directs the viewer into the painting, looking at the figure of Christ. He's created a vaulted ceiling, or painted a vaulted ceiling, and the coffers all line up to that vanishing point. And you can see very clearly that they're in perspective. So again, these lines, the coffers, the lines of the columns, everything directs you to the figure of Christ. It's very intentional. He's placing you beneath the feet of Christ, looking up at the figure. The eye level is placed very low. Why would he place you so far beneath the figure of Christ? Well, you're looking up. So if you imagine a crucifixion, you're at a certain level looking up at the figure. It's also pretty close to the eye level as you come into the church placing about where the average height, average eye level would be. If you were standing in front of this wall or chapel, since it's supposed to mimic a chapel, and looking in. So you would literally be looking up at the figure of Christ. It would be, you know, large ceiling over your head. And if you look at the figures, 
as they recede into space, they become smaller. So the two figures outside, again, I said they're life size. And one step in, Mary and John are a little bit smaller. And of course, the figure of Christ and God the Father, the Holy Trinity, are just ever so slightly smaller than them. All of this creates that illusion of depth, that realism. It makes you feel as though you're actually looking into a real chapel cut out of the wall rather than a painting. I want you to imagine living in the 1400s and seeing this work by Masaccio for the first time, the Holy Trinity and the depth. You live in a world where everything is flat. I just don't think we can really grasp how groundbreaking this was and what effect this would have on people viewing this. We're used to seeing things in three dimensions. We've been surrounded by it culturally for the last 500 years. But for these people, what an earth-shattering event this would be to see this work on the wall. This false door, this illusion, can almost walk into it, but yet it's painted flatly on a wall. That's what I want you to come away with. The groundbreaking innovation of Masaccio's use of perspective in art. We also need to look at the modeling on the figures. There's a sculptural quality to these figures. They're like statues. They feel real. They have that solidity. We began to see this with Giotto, but Masaccio takes it further, and he uses what's known as chiaroscuro. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we get to the Brancacci Chapel. But essentially, this is a dramatic use of light and dark, which creates the rounding of the form, also creating the illusion of depth. This is why I believe the Holy Trinity was painted after the Brancacci Chapel, or at least towards the end of that series. There's a confidence in his brush. There's a confidence in his drawing. The rendering of his figures is much better than it was in Brancacci Chapel. So I think he's moving forward. And this is the culmination. So for a change, Fasari's chronology is right this time. Now let's go back to the Brancacci Chapel. He began work on the chapel in 1424, working with another Thomas, Masolino, which means Little Tom. Probably these nicknames were adopted to separate them a little bit. So you won't have two Tommasos in the same area. Be confusing, right? The two were known for working together on several projects, but for some reason, Masolino left for Hungary in 1425, leaving everything unfinished. Reasons are unknown. There are some that speculate there is an artistic difference. Masaccio is definitely taking an entirely different turn in his art, and the way he portrayed the figure, and the way he portrayed depth and space. Shortly after Masolino's departure, Masaccio too leaves the chapel and doesn't return again until 1427. So, if we're looking at our dates between this and the Holy Trinity, you can see that they're very close. What I'd like to do is focus on three pieces from the Brancacci Chapel. It's the tribute money, the expulsion from the Garden of Eden, and the resurrection of the son of Theophilus. The tribute money contains three distinct scenes, and these tell the life of St. Peter. The center painting has Christ telling Peter that he will find a coin in the mouth of a fish to pay the tax collector. He's surrounded by various disciples, and then the tax collector is actually facing Jesus. He's the man you'll see with his back to us. If you remember, Giotto painted similar type scenes in his work in the Lamentation. Next we go to the left of the panel, and you see Peter kneeling, pulling the coin out of the fish's mouth. He's actually in perspective with the other figures, so he's a much smaller figure, and cooler colors. So a little bit of aerial perspective here, which we did not see in the Holy Trinity. To the right side of the fresco, we see Peter 
forcefully placing the coin in the hand of the tax collector. In this painting, if you look at the buildings behind the tax collector, the vanishing point is directly behind Christ. This directs your eye directly to the central figure. Who's most important in this painting? Yes, it's about Peter, but Satya wants us looking at the figure of Christ. He's creating the illusion of death using linear perspective, but he's also using aerial perspective. And if you look at the mountains, as they move further back, they become bluer and lighter, and eventually they vanish, and you can't tell the mountains from the sky. This gives the impression of endless space. There's nothing that blocks the eye, that stops the movement of space. So we talked about the modeling of the figures with the Holy Trinity. Here, you see the same thing. These are flesh and blood people, very much inspired by Giotto. Something new that Masaccio uses, we talked about earlier, the strong lights, the chiaroscuro, that create the rounding of form. And the faint background with the figures painted in very strong colors makes them feel closer to the viewer. If you remember, we talked about how strong colors, bright colors, reds, yellows, come forward. And these, are, these figures are painted with very strong color, and this brings them forward into space. Also, notice the lifelike gestures, the natural poses, the sort of force that Peter is placing that coin in the tax collector's hand, the expression on Peter's face. This is like Giotto. Moving on from the tribute money, we have the expulsion from the garden. Adam and Eve have sinned. They've eaten of the fruit, of the tree of knowledge, and they're expelled from the garden, from the gates of paradise. Satya's painting is the inspiration of Michelangelo's version of this story on the Sistine ceiling. In fact, they're almost identical. Michelangelo, like other artists of the time, would reappropriate images. They would use similar designs, similar images from previous artists and incorporate them in, partly to save time, also as homage to great artists like Masaccio. So this fresco is the very first fresco in the upper part of the chapel as you walk in. One of the things that really pushes things forward that separates Masaccio from other artists of his day not unlike Giotto, it's the extreme emotion that he places on the faces of his figures. And if you look at the extreme emotion of Adam and Eve as they're forced from the garden, the figures are dark, they're guilt-ridden. Adam hangs his head in shame. Eve's covering herself. As they step out of the gates of paradise, they're hit by this harsh light of the world. It's not a soft golden light. This is cold, direct Masaccio is making a statement with his use of light. These figures are now stepping into a whole new... The humans will now face the hardships of the world outside the garden. If we go up from the gates, you can see the angel. Probably Michael with the sword. He's ushering them out. But the angel, what's interesting about him, he is foreshortened. There's actually perspective in the figure. Foreshortening is another term for perspective, particularly when it relates to the figure as a body part, an arm or torso move forward. But the concept stays the same. The angel, because of the foreshortening, seems to come out of the painting. And this is also a new technique that we have not seen before. The last one we're going to talk about is the raising of Theophilus and St. Peter enthroned. Now, this painting was not completed by Masaccio. It was begun by him. We think the lower right corner, the lower right portion, is completed mostly by him and probably was sketched by him. He abandoned this work, reasons unknown. We still don't know exactly what happened, whether it was a falling out, or he may have died before he was able to complete it, and perhaps he had the intention of returning to complete the work. 
So it was finally completed by Filippo Lippi 50 years later. This story represents Peter and Paul resurrecting Theophilus 14 years after his death. But it has a deeper political meaning. It actually alludes to the conflict between Florence and Milan. Theophilus resembles the Duke of Milan, who had been besieging Florence for several decades, off and on. And we've sort of brushed over these conflicts, but some of the conflicts with Milan play into the turmoil in early Florence. The figure sitting on Theophilus, however, resembles the Chancellor of Florence. The figure of St. Peter, of course, St. Peter being considered the first pope, represents the contemporary pope who acted as a mediator between Florence and Milan. So it gives a little bit more of a political story beyond the religious implications. This particular fresco uses a lot more perspective than we saw in the tribute money. And it's a very complex design with these sort of classical buildings and you see corners on either side and a central vanishing point. It's hard to tell how much of this was Masaccio's original intent and how much of it comes from Filippo Lippi 50 years later. The Brancacci Chapel was left unfinished. Parts of it were destroyed by a fire. Some may have been destroyed by the Medici, who were enemies of the Brancacci. Masaccio died in 1428 at only 26. The legend, same legend you'll see in Vasari, was that he was poisoned by a rival. But that rival is not named. So the true cause is unknown. It could be any number of illnesses of the time, from malaria to cholera to the plague. There are only four works that we can actually attribute to Masaccio, though there are several others that are thought to be partially painted by him and then completed by others. But despite his short life, he would have a huge impact on the Renaissance. He would affect every artist, particularly painters, Michelangelo studied in the Brancacci Chapel, and it served as an inspiration for the Sistine Chapel. Not only did Michelangelo pull direct figures, but just the style and how he handled biblical subjects with a classical archetype. That's Masaccio. And then Michelangelo takes those ideas and moves forward with them in his own work. They're all going to look back to Masaccio. Vasari laments, as should we, the loss of Masaccio, and the work not yet begun. If you look at artists like Michelangelo, they worked well into their 80s. Imagine the work that Masaccio could have completed. Imagine the knowledge he could have passed on had he lived. In Vasari's lives, he quotes Brunelleschi in saying, We have suffered a very great loss in Masaccio. Brunelleschi truly grieved for his friend Masaccio, and remember, he had trained Masaccio. He had taught him geometry and perspective and all of these tools. So they were very, very close. And it was said to have a deep impact on him when Masaccio died. Despite his short life, Masaccio had such a huge effect that even today we're still studying him. In every art classroom across America and the world, we study perspective because of what he did. Next week, we will discuss Donatello. The other member of this group of artists, Brunelleschi, Masaccio, and Donatello, one of the greatest that ever lived. We're now in our fifth week, and I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I think we're getting into a rhythm finally. Well, I would like to invite you, if you're enjoying this podcast, to please come and support the show. There are a couple ways you can do this. Please visit our sponsors through the sponsor links on the renaissancepodcast.com. If you look, there's a link to Amazon on the bottom. 
I've also included links to all of my references. If you click on the picture in the bibliography section, it will take you directly to Amazon if you would like to buy the book. One recommendation I have is, of course, Brunelleschi's Dome, Vasari's Lives, uh, all great books that we've been using throughout the show so far. I'm also going to include these links on the show notes. So I'm including a second post with every podcast that includes images and also will include links to the sources I'm using for that episode. You may also support us through Audible. Audible is one of our sponsors. It's a great resource for audiobooks. If you're sitting in your car stuck in traffic, it's a great time to turn on an audiobook. So please visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for your 30-day trial subscription, or you may visit the link on the website. Next time you purchase from Audible, please be sure to click on the link on the upper right side of the website. That'll let them know that you are supporting the show by using that service. If you prefer, you may also buy me a cup of coffee. You can do that too. You may make a small donation through the link on the website. Just click the support the show tab. Or if you look to the panel on the right, there's a donate button. And there you may make a secure donation through PayPal to support the show and keep us running. If none of these are an option, please take a moment to help spread the word. Tell your friends, share us on Facebook. In fact, go to Facebook and like our page. It's the Renaissance Podcast. If you're on iTunes, please consider writing a review for the show. All of this will help us keep the show going and help support the podcast and spread the word so we can talk more about Renaissance art. Thank you for your support, and I look forward to discussing Donatello next week.